have I got a story for you. Serving two years with the Peace Corps in Madagascar wasn't enough adventure for this guy. So with only weeks left on his visa, he added a little photojournalistic investigative reporting to his resume and a motorcycle to his limited possessions, hitting the road to end his once-in-a-lifetime African experience. But first, today's sponsor, toothbrushes. Tiger King should have reminded us all just how important dental hygiene is. And if you think cell phones have come a long way, those fucking things are Neanderthals on the evolutionary path to personal hygiene compared to the toothbrush. The toothbrush started out as a toothpick and has been re-engineered and ergonomically designed, even motorized, to consider brush rate, force, pulsation, and even sensitive gums. Remember, gum and mouthwash just won't do it. Don't even fucking try it. That's just stupid. What are you, for? There is no substitute for those 60 solid seconds of swirling paste around those pearly whites with a fresh new toothbrush bristles cleaning those crevices two to three times a day. 60 seconds is half of your daily recommended brush time. Uh, 60 on the bottom, 60 on the top. Toothbrushes are the best tool to prevent gum disease, plaque buildup, and tooth decay. But you already knew that. Toothbrushes just wanted to remind you of how important they are to your basic health and attractability. First impressions fall flat without a full smile, so keep yours photo ready by regularly replacing your toothbrush. Toothbrushes, just two minutes of your time for a lifetime of healthy teeth. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. Friend and follow the pod for updates of when new episodes post and reminders of old ones. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Message us if you or someone you know wants to come on. Think of us as your unofficial wingmen, here to hype you up. Listen and subscribe on all podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, iHeart. We also always appreciate the reviews. And now, getting to know you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. My cup of tea. On today's show, we are getting to know Sam. Sam is in Maryland, which I think, dude, you might be the second closest guest I've ever had on the podcast. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, how's it going? Uh, good. This pandemic's pretty crazy, but uh, yeah, other than that, I'm just uh, kind of hanging out. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, how are you? Oh, man. I'm actually a little upset that I scheduled this with you today because today's like the first good weather day we've had in like yeah, a uh, week and a half, man. I'm bummed out. Yeah, I'm doing this phone call like with you just taking a walk outside. Yeah, the weather's super nice. Yeah, I uh, I was picking weeds just to have something to do outside. Um, so I started a podcast with quarantine just because I had all this extra time. Have you developed any like weird hobbies habits <laughs> with uh, all the extra time? Not really. Just doing like a lot of Facetime with my friends and. Uh... Like doing like random projects that I've been putting off, I guess, but not nothing too crazy yet. Uh, just like I don't know, like 
hobbies I had before, and I'm just like doing more of that, like more guitar, more whatever else. But uh, no, okay. it's pretty boring, honestly. That's what I've been doing. Yeah, it's so. How does the FaceTime stuff? Like, does it feel fulfilling? Like you are hanging with people, or does it still feel awkward for you? Well, I, would, I definitely wouldn't say it's awkward. I just FaceTime with my friends basically every night. I mean, it's nice because I do it like like every night basically I FaceTime with people. It's almost like I like, yeah, I mean, I, I FaceTime with people all the time. And I mean, these are like my close friends, so it's not weird or it's not really weird, but it's it's not exactly the same thing as seeing people in person. But uh, I don't know. It is what it is, I guess. Yeah, well. That was something I was thinking about. So I'm a, I'm almost 40 at this point and it, I'm around kids. I'm a teacher as well. So like you see kids and you see them hanging out with each other. And it's that whole thing of like, they're texting each other while they're in the same room on the same couch kind of a yeah. thing. And I almost felt like a lot of kids growing up on technology were almost used to um, isolating and communicating through it and with it. And that's, I guess that's why I was wondering if it's uh, really much of a difference for you if you're like used to kind of just oh man i facetime every night anyway this is no different well i i definitely didn't facetime every night before this thing started i i facetimed uh like I, you know i was in the peace corps or whatever and uh i because my peace corps friends would they all like moved all around the country after we all got back from madagascar but um i would facetime with some of them like every couple of weeks like you know um and so i did that but not with like my local friends. We would never FaceTime. We would just see each other in person. Got you. Okay. Yeah, it's um, just I don't know why my mind goes there, but I always think of those like social, like sociology kind of things. Like, what is this effect on different groups of people, different types of people? The whole quarantine and then the social distancing thing, you know? Um, no, I mean I'm sure it's driving a ton of people insane. Yeah, right. But like, or is it? <laughs> like, no, I'm, it's... I'm sure it is. I, I know it is. I mean, I know that like calls to mental health clinics have gone up like a thousand percent since things started. You know, people are definitely going insane. Huh. Um, I mean, you, people need to like see other human beings. They can't just like be cooped up in their houses all day. It's not good for you. It's not good for you. You got to see other people. Yeah. 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 I. The weird thing that's weirding me out is going. So they call it social distancing, right? And like going to the grocery store now, there's like this weird bubble around people where like can if you're looking at the rice, how close can I get to grab the rice? Do I wait six feet and then when you move away, like I then go in? Can I brush by you? What do we do with like shopping carts going on a two-lane road? And it like people – eye contact is so far down and – um. I don't know, man. It's just weird to me. You can't tell if people are smiling or like what their mood is because their faces are covered up. Um, it makes yeah. it, makes it awkward, you know. Where it used to be like shopping wasn't anything; you just shopped. Yeah, it's definitely weird. I yeah, me and one of my neighbors, I, I saw him in the supermarket, and we were both like wearing our masks and stuff, but we like still kind of recognized each other and did the whole head nod thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely weird. Yeah, I kind of miss just running into people. And then being able to like shoot the shit or whatever for like five minutes outside before you jump in your car, you know? Yeah, it's not possible. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Maybe you are convincing me. Yep. This is, I, I am on board with you now. Yeah. This is a big deal. Does yeah, it, yeah. does it feel like you, I mean, it's been like a month, right? Oh, a little over a month now. Like, does it feel that long to you or does it feel like it was just yesterday that shit was normal? 
kind of feels like it was. I don't even know. Like, it feels like it's been a pretty long time, honestly. I don't know. Like, like I mean, just like the type of stuff that we were dealing with before this stuff happened just seems like so long ago. Like, I mean, I mean, we almost got into like a war with Iran. Like, that was like two months ago. That feels like twenty years ago. You know, like oh, no one's talking about that anymore. But that was like a pretty big deal when it happened. Like, literally, missiles were being fired on our bases after we like dropped bombs on other countries and stuff jesus we're dude, just I... like we're just like oh that's just like no one even remembers that that was like 20 years ago that was like that was like six weeks ago or something that was not a long time yeah dude i hadn't i didn't even think about it like that that's so true like i actually can't remember the last time i saw a news story that was not corona related no yeah it's uh 24 7 it's pretty wild god it is it's like nothing else is happening but, uh, so you're a teacher. How's, uh, are you teaching remotely or like yeah, it's, Zoom or how's that work? Yeah, you can Zoom. Basically, it, um, there's this app called Schoology, which if it's basically like a Facebook setup. So like kids are registered in the class. You can post stuff. You can put out tests. You can have like little chats. Um, and then you use Zoom if you got to uh, see people um, to explain stuff. But they're trying to get away from uh, like a teacher and then 30 kids on a Zoom chat. <laughs> Cause yeah. I mean, that's just asking for trouble, man. How are you going to discipline a kid who's in their own home? How are you going to keep them focused? You know, like there's just too, too many variables. Yeah. I have no idea how they would do that, I guess. Yeah. It would, it's, it would be terribly boring to me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm walking. yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, did someone just yell at you for walking in pajamas? That was actually a cop. He said, I'm so jealous of your pajamas. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like right outside my house. But uh, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> the cop is so jealous of your pajamas. Yeah. yeah. All right, man. Well, when I had um, originally messaged you and asked about um, if you would come on the podcast for your story, um, you and you mentioned the Madagascar thing. So let me get some Madagascar stories, man. Tell me about cool. it. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I uh, after college, I joined the Peace Corps, and um, I went to Madagascar, um, and for those of you who know, like, the way the Peace Corps works is, um, it's kind of a, it, like, you live in another country, like, basically all of them are developing or non-developed nations, whatever you want to call them, um, for 27 months, uh, three months is training, and then two years you're just living um, like in the country and for Madagascar, it's a really rural country. So basically all of us were living in the countryside. And for me, I lived on the East coast and, uh, it was just like no running water, no electricity, um, kind of the village lifestyle. Um, all the houses were like bamboo and Ravenol leaves roofs. And, um, it was just a very like wild experience, very like awesome and uh two years two years straight like you don't come home for christmas anything like that no two years straight um never left and um and then afterwards i actually stayed until my visa expired which was six weeks and that's a really long story and maybe we'll get into that but i ended up getting a motorcycle and riding around madagascar um, (laughs) like investigating a couple of like human rights and environmental issues and uh writing about those and getting them published and stuff. Um, Thanks. The decision after college to go Peace Corps. 
Are you just trying to pick up chicks? <laughs> you trying to get like your college loan forgiven? What's uh? uh well, what was that actually, about? You, you don't get your college loan forgiven. You oh. get it. Um, well, the, I think you don't have to pay it while you're in the Peace Corps, but you don't like get any of that loan taken away. Like once you get back, you're just back to paying your loans. Uh, are um, they are they still charging you interest, or do they at least stop the interest as well? Well, I I did two years in community college. Nice. And that saved me a ton of money. Jesus, dude. And so then, many people need to do that. Like, that, yeah, it that's probably a, saved me, I don't even know, like, however much money, you know, 60000 70000 bucks or something like that. And God. so when I went to college, like, I mean, college is expensive, but I ended up leaving without that crazy much debt. Like, so I, I kind of got a, got my arms around it. It's not, it's not like insane six-figure digit like gotcha. debt that some people leave with it's, it's like totally manageable so um interest rates honestly i couldn't even tell you like because it's it's not it's just not like a crazy number it's like i'm paying off like a small amount a month and i got my arms around it gotcha. but uh um yeah so why did i join the peace corps well it was kind of interesting because i uh i always wanted to join peace corps madagascar like even when i was a kid i wanted to do peace corps madagascar um and yeah, man. Once I graduated from college, I just uh, I, I just did it. And um, you're just adventurous you know, like that. Like you just really wanted that um, experience. You were looking to like help people, or well, what was yeah, the? I just got all of the above. I, I always wanted to <laughs> go to Madagascar. Or like I always wanted to do Peace Corps, and like I was into it like on and off growing up. And I remember there was this video I saw on YouTube that's like ten years old now, or maybe even older than that, fifteen years old about Peace Corps Madagascar and I remember like showing my like mom this video when it when it like just came out when I was a little kid and said like I'm gonna do this when I like when I get older and I I did it but uh it was like yeah when I went there I'd never left America prior to going to Madagascar like I'd never been to Mexico or Canada or anything like that right so it was like a huge kind of leap of faith so to speak like just kind of hoping that i would <laughs> i'd like it and uh but growing up you know i was always watching like anthony bourdain and andrew zimmern and all those like oh, okay. travel shows it's always super into that stuff and um yeah i was just uh, i wanted to like see the world and like experience that stuff and you know like some of my earliest memories like as a kid are like looking at nat geo magazines and being like just have my mind blown that like this stuff exists and we don't like talk about it you know like there's (laughs) completely other different cultures and like it's just like they they just happen to exist it's like like, nowhere on our minds other than like i've always like seen this stuff in person like experience it and peace corps was like it's the only program of its kind as far as i know that exists on earth um where they really literally just teach you the language put you in a village you're, you're you're on your own there and just lived there for two years and try and learn about the culture and do projects. I was, I was a health worker, so I did health stuff, but it was, uh, I mean, it was awesome. What was, what's the language in Madagascar? Uh, Malagasy. Malagasy. Wow. Yeah. They, they have a French is like, I think the like business language, but, uh, people don't really speak French. I mean, some people do in the countryside a little bit, but, and more people do in cities, but it's not like I'd never heard two Malagasy people speaking French to each other. That they speak Malagasy to each other, and, and uh, yeah. No, well, I'm just trying to think. Um, what what is um shit? The way things sound, I thought like phonemes maybe 
like um not the accent but like how many different it's a stupid question but like oh, the, oh, the different yeah yeah, yeah right no, the, exactly there's a, there's 12 i think 12 i don't know what they but there there are dialects and mine was in the northeast and it was about best for some Gosh, yeah, you're a, all these different dialects. And, uh, yeah, sorry. No, well, you're cutting in and out on it, um, uh, a little bit, Sam. I don't know if it's the wind in your mic. Uh, let me. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll try and uh, go somewhere else. But um, yeah, the, my dialect was called Bessemsarka Nord, and there were like twelve different. I, I think it was twelve. Maybe I'm getting the number wrong, but there's a bunch of different dialects, and they're all kind of different, but they're mainly similar. And then. Like, one of them was called Atanjrui, and that was, like, the most dissimilar of all the other dialects. That one was, I wouldn't go as far as to say its own language, but it was, like, that one was the most different. I, I traveled around that part of the country when I was doing my journalism stuff, and they, they, they that was, like, super, that was really hard to understand when I was down there. Yeah, that's. I guess that's what I was wondering. So when you're like going to these different places, if you learned one, would it like just be transferable, or did you feel like, oh shit, man, I gotta learn a whole uh, other language? More or less transferable. I mean, first off, I wasn't fluent in Malagasy even at the end of the two years. I was definitely not fluent. I mean, some Peace Corps people were just way better than I was, but um, I mean, it's it's harder to learn a language than people think. Like even two years, you're not gonna be like fluent. Really, I don't know anyone that was straight up fluent after the two years, but. You know, you're good enough, you're conversational, you can, like, get around right. and talk to people and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I I mean, I could, like, come up with some, like, examples for you. But there's some, like, words that are different, but for the most part, it sounds the same. Um, but then, like, again, there's that one dialect in the Deep South where it's just a very different dialect. In fact, when I was there doing my journalism stuff, it was on my birthday, and um, I met this missionary called Steve, Steve the missionary, who, he was an American that was, like, in his late 60s, I think, and he lived in a, uh, in a town called Siwum Bay, which was in this Atanjuri region of Madagascar, and I knew about him because I had a friend that knew him, and he knew that I was doing, like, this journalism stuff and he said hey when you go down to um deep south you should stop by tsum bay and meet this guy named steve the missionary and he will help you uh you know he's like a good guy to know if you're trying to do this type of stuff because he's been here for 70 years or whatever and <laughs> so i uh when i went there um i like just rode up on this town and said uh, you know i was on my motorcycle and basically was just asking people like where's Steve, like, where's, like, the big white guy named Steve, basically? And they were like, oh, go this way. Like, everyone knew who this dude Steve was. And, like, that's, like, kind of a, a thing in the countryside of Madagascar. Like, everyone knows everyone, you know. Like, it's not just because he was, like, the, the missionary. Like, everyone just kind of knows everyone. And so they all say, like, go this way. Like, this is where his house is. And eventually I got to his house. And he lived in this, like, old, like, I don't even know, like, old like 100 year old colonial house at the top of a hill and he he was a good guy i mean he he did like health work and um he just lived in madagascar his entire life but as far as i know he was the only american that was truly like fluent in autonomy like maybe there were more but 
I mean, hearing him speak was like a trip because he was straight up fluent. I mean, he'd lived in Madagascar since he was a kid. He sounded just like a Malagasy person. Yeah, you'd almost, and, I would think you'd almost have to, right? Like, it, I, I don't know yeah, how long definitely. immersion takes to just yeah. feel that comfortable. But No, he, he'd been there his whole life. He, he was, I think, even born in Madagascar. But oh, wow. he, like, his parents did something. I, I forget what it was, but he, like, grew up in the... Like, he, he grew up going to, like, the American schools in Madagascar, and then he just stayed. And so he, like, he's an American with, like, an American accent when he speaks English, and he collects Social Security, I think. He, and <laughs> uh, awesome. and he just, he also speaks fluent Malagasy and just lives, like, in the deep countryside and would spend, like, days and even weeks just going deep into the countryside on his own to do, like, health slash missionary work. And actually, when I was there um, and I met him, I said... Like, he started telling me these stories about, um, like, Gatanjuri people and the culture and how, like, incredible their culture was and how, like, you would go deep into the countryside and, like, people would, they would take these, like, bulls that were made of, I forgot what they were, they were called, but there, there was, like, some word for it that was, like, it was, like, a type of, like, vegetable or something that was, like, hollowed out. I forget what it was. And they would say they'd, like, give you fresh, like, milk in in these things and like there's all this like like traditional cultural like stuff that went along with it that like it it was supposed to be like very unique and he was telling me about all this stuff and i said like can we go out to the countryside tomorrow it's my birthday and he was like yeah sure let's do it and he said we're going to this village it's like just right here it's not like it's not far i don't want to go too far and so i figured like this dude's like 70 years old i'm figuring like Oh, so that means we're going to a village that's like, you know, 10 feet outside the village. Well, this <laughs> dude was like, you know, he'd been living that life and he was totally like jacked. He, he was literally in better shape than I was. And so we went on these mo- on these mountain bikes. He had two of them. And we went like 20 miles out into the countryside. Oh, and that was like just a quick bike ride for him. But I was like dying. It took like hours. And then it's like, you know, up hills and like you know, just completely in the countryside, spiny thicket forest. And this part of the country is, like, really cool. Like, everyone, a lot of people would carry spears and, like, daggers and stuff, and it was really unique and cool. And we went out, and... Let me ask about this bike ride, dude, because I'm thinking, and it's probably my ignorance, but, like, 20 miles on a bike through, in, in Africa, like... Are, are you worried like shit's going to come at you like 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 animals will attack uh, or it's like, no, it's populated. People kind of have this trail and the animals stay away. Uh, well, it's not really populated. It was actually in that 20 miles or so. We only hit three villages. So it's very rural and it was through spiny thicket, spiny thicket forest. But I was not worried about animals because there's not there's no there's no like lines tigers there's none of those big animals in madagascar madagascar only has small animals and it doesn't even have any poisonous snakes or anything like that so oh wow i wasn't worried about that at all we did see some uh tortoises or like turtles whichever ones are on the land but like that was that was cool but uh and you just screamed just to fake it at that point all right (laughs) like ah oh wait it's a turtle never mind but um yeah it, it was awesome we went super out into the bush and uh came back and it was really interesting experience. And on our way back, my bike actually broke. The the tire popped, and we're like 15 miles away from from his house, Tsumbe. And just like that Malagasy, like 
Atan Drury, like super welcoming, super hospitality centric, uh, centric culture. Like just whenever someone would pass us without exaggeration, nobody left until we were squared away. Like no one would leave us there. They would all stay and try and help out. You know, I mean, only oh, wow. one person would pass or two people would pass every, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. But when they would come, they would not leave. And they would just help us fix this bike. And we didn't have the materials because the, the tire was popped. And so, like, a couple of teenagers, like, went into this mining thicket forest. And I actually have this on video. And found, like, some root um, or some vine and brought it back and then took their, like, knife and like cut it open to get like this white sap out of it which kind of worked as an adhesive like a glue oh yeah and they would use that to patch up the tire and we ended up it worked for like a minute (laughs) you know it took us like hours to get this thing going and then finally when i got on the bike and started riding um the tire just popped in you know a minute and what ended up happening is these two malagasy guys autonomy guys were just like hey We'll take your bike. Don't worry about it. Um, you get on the back of the missionary's bike. So I sat on the back of the missionary's bike, and he took me back like those 15 miles right. that was left. And then these two Atanjuri guys, they like one of them got rode on their bike, and then the other one got on the back of that bike while carrying my bike <laughs> over his shoulder. And they rode like I mean it was completely out of their way, but that's just like people in the countryside. They're so accommodating, so like. I mean, you just help people if they need help. It's like right. as simple as that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'll never forget that. And dude, I had many, many, many experiences just like that where people showed, like, just incredible kindness towards me. Like, how many times in America are you driving in your car and someone's, like, got their hood up on the side of the road? And you're like, oh, they'll be all right. I, I, you know exactly. what I'm saying? I mean, like, imagine, Jesus. imagine literally without fail every single person stopping and refusing to leave until your car got fixed. Because yeah. they're like, we're not going to leave you alone out here. Right. No, I mean, you could be on a major 12-lane highway. You'll have 20,000 cars pass you. Yeah. But no one, uh, no one wants to help. Man. No, and, uh, I mean, I experienced it throughout my service, but um, – especially during that motorcycle trip where I relied on people, you know, places to stay, people to help me out. And uh, it was just, you know, people are just so nice. I mean, that's what makes Madagascar Madagascar as far as I'm concerned. And also just the landscapes and, and all that stuff. But What's the size of Madagascar? Are we talking like... It's about the size of California. I was thinking that, okay. I think it has 20 or 30 million people. I th- th- That number could be off, but I, I think it's something like that. But... About the size of California, tons of different ecosystems. You got jungles, deserts, uh, spiny thicket forests, big like mountains. It's it's got to be like one of the most unique countries on earth, if not the most unique. So, I, spiny? Are you saying spiny thicket forest? Yeah, that's just like forests that are really. I don't know what the, like the technical definition is, but as far as I can tell, just like really dry forests where like literally there's just like like spines coming out of like everything like the trees and oh, man. again i don't know what the like the technical definition yeah. is but but this is what i saw with my eyes and it's really cool to see in person i mean it's really unique yeah but you're not like it's it's dense i'm imagining like you're not trying yeah. to walk through that right like you're not trying to hike um it's dense but you could go through it um one of the stories I ended up working on was on 
the last hunter-gatherers in Madagascar, the Nikea, and how deforestation was like affecting their way of life. And so I lived with these guys for four days, three, three and a half days. And um, it was actually pretty incredible because I got, to, you know, I was like, when I went there, according to them, I was the first foreigner in like many years to, to, to live actually with them as they lived, like since the missionary decades ago is what they told me. Oh, wow. And um, that was a spiny thicket forest. Although when I actually published this, I ended up talking back and forth with a professor um, that supposedly was an expert on this stuff in the United States. And he told me like, no, that wasn't a spiny thick forest. Um, but then I sent some pictures I took and I think he was like, oh, maybe it is. So, you know, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it was a spiny thick forest and I, took, I have the pictures to prove it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, those guys would hunt and stuff. And yeah, the so way you do that is by walking through the forest. Like, so I, I did that and you can do it. What are they hunting? Um, a number of things. One is they're gathering, so they're finding plants to eat. Those were roots called um, balu was a big one. And um, but the hunting, they were apparently they hunted um, wild boars. Though I never saw them get a wild boar, but from what they told me, they would they would kill wild boars with spears by throwing spears at wild boars. I never saw that in my time with them. They said that's really rare. But they did kill and eat, and I ate with them, um, lemur or not lemurs, um, hedgehogs oh, wow. and, and birds. And um, they actually um, did eat uh, lemurs also, but I, I didn't eat those lemurs because I'm a bazaha, which is what they call like gringos over there. A and uh, bazaha? Yeah, that's like the gringo type oh, okay. bird, you know? And uh, I didn't eat that. First off, I don't think it was le- – it wouldn't have been legal for me to eat it. But according to them, they're allowed to eat, like, lemurs because, I mean, they're the Mikea hunter-gatherers, and they're in Mikea National Park, and they're allowed to eat, like – I think if there's a huge group of mouse lemurs, they said they're allowed to eat, like, 5% of them at a time. So th- it's, like, sustainable, they said. Um, I-, I don't know. I believe it. But um, yeah, what what makes is the lemur like an endangered species down there? Yeah. Okay. Huh. Um. But so, so they're they're was, almost like like in my head I'm almost thinking like they're um like Native Americans in the United States like they're the like almost like their um own population or own uh, territory onto themselves. Um, maybe, but these. There's not a whole lot of them. Like Native Americans, I don't know how many there are in this country, but I would assume there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions. There, I mean, Mikea, there's there's only a couple thousand of them. Okay. Yeah, and they they live. I mean, there were. I, I don't know how like in the weeds you want me to go on this, but like there were like four groups, insofar as I could tell, of these hunter gatherers. Two of them lived completely off of hunting and gathering. And then two of them hunted and gathered during the day, but they also had villages. That is to say that the other two groups were nomadic, but these um, these other two groups, they they had villages and they, they also farmed. So they would hunt and gather during the day in the forest, okay. but they also had um, um, uh, like they, a they sedentary grow, spot. Yeah, they would grow like cassava and stuff like that. And um, yeah, but it was it was wild. Um, 
one of the dudes that I was with, his name was Bizarri. There's a story I got published on Manga Bay about this deforestation. It, there's a picture of him in it. And it was the first picture that's ever been taken of this guy. He's lived completely off hunting and gathering his entire life in the forest. Um, and he, um, yeah, yeah, it was the first picture ever taken of him. And said I was like the first like white guy he'd seen since he was like a little kid. And he was like <laughs> in his 60s now. And I was the first like foreigner to like hunt like spend my time with this guy and uh it was really wild really cool i mean just yeah a really unique experience did you um jesus dude i cannot wrap my head around like being a hunter gatherer into my 60s like that's it does he just do it to keep culture alive is there no other option like he doesn't want to join a village because it would be boring or um well first uh well, I wouldn't use the word boring, but it's it's partially because that is his culture. I mean, I remember, I, like, so let me back up. I'll explain it by explaining why I was there in the first place, I guess. When I was there, um, I was there. Actually, let me, you want me to just tell you this entire story? Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the way I ended up there, this is a very long story, actually. I don't know how long. I could talk about how I ended up there for a long time, but <laughs> I... I was on my way to investigate a mining company called Rio Tinto. Actually, let me take a step back from that. Even. I, I was on the west coast of Madagascar, and there's a road called the RN10, which stands for Route Nationale 10, which basically means highway. Okay. And the RN10 cut down from a city called Tuliar on the west coast Actually, I think it starts like 30 miles away from the city, but nevertheless in that area and goes all the way down to the southeast, a city called Fort Dauphin, which is one of the most beautiful cities on earth, Fort Dauphin, just absolutely beautiful on, on the ocean, mountains. It looks like a combination of like, I don't even know, Havana and like Switzerland, just like <laughs> massive mountains on the beach, insanely beautiful, awesome, awesome city. And that road is kind of notorious in Madagascar for being very bad, like just a very bad road. Um, takes you like completely unpaved to put it in perspective. I think it's like, it, it's, it's a couple hundred miles. It should not take that long. And I had friends, Peace Corps friends that took what was called a camion, which is like a bus through that entire road during the rainy season. So the roads were flooded. And it took them 72 hours straight. And in America, that would take wow. like three hours, like yeah, three hours seriously. or something. And um, so I was going to do that road on my motorcycle. And I ended up doing it. But when I first started, I my motorcycle got um, – it broke down after the first day. And You and bikes, man. Just not meant to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it broke down after the first day. I got stuck in a village called Batuki. And it was this tiny town, um, and there's a little tiny like like place you could stay there. And I stayed there the first night. And then the next day when I went to complete my trip, which I figured would take a couple more days um, to get to Porto Fan, um, my motorcycle would not start. And I 
long story short, took me a couple of days. I stayed there. I ended up meeting a an English teacher, and I stayed with him and his family for the next couple of days in their village. And um, he actually didn't really speak great English. We ended up speaking Malagasy, not English, because um, mine was probably a little better than his. But we'd kind of go back and forth. And but super nice guy. And finally, um, I said, okay, I'm going to. I'm like really drawing this story out, I guess. I mean, I could, I'm like not even anywhere close to the hunter gatherer stuff yet, but I'll, I'll try to speed it, <laughs> speed it up. But like I said, okay, I'm going to try to, um, take my, um, I'm going to just take a camion, those things I was talking about, like basically buses or whatever right. to get me to Fort Dauphin. And then when I get there, I'll have like a mechanic work and fix my motorcycle. And can I ask you, dude, how are you earning money? Are you selling stories and then, like, no, earning well, that I, way? How do you pay for off, a mechanic? <laughs> I mean, just the, the stuff is just really cheap in Madagascar. That's the honest answer. I uh, Like, when I say man, mechanic, that would, like, stuff is just really cheap in Madagascar. I mean, that entire trip cost me, I don't even know, like a thousand bucks, like six weeks, motorcycle, oh. all that stuff. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Actually, now that I think about it, probably much less than a thousand dollars. Probably only a couple hundred dollars. I don't even know. Very, it barely costs anything. Gotcha. I mean, it's just very. Madagascar is just very cheap. You can get a meal for a dollar. You know, it's very cheap. Gotcha. And um, and so thinking about hopping so, on a bus, right? right. Just get so, a new bike or get the dude to fix it. So I was gonna hop on a bus, and my headphones broke. And for like music, and I remember just thinking, this is going to be like a four-day trip. I don't want to be sitting on this bus for like 24 hours a day for the next couple of days with no music. So I was like, I'm going to go. I'm not going to do that. So I'm like, I'm just going to go back. And so there's this. So I meet this guy, and he says, Hey, we will like. He ended up saying a bunch of stuff that was not true, but he was saying like, Hey. I, I work for an NGO and I'm going to be taking a pickup truck back to Tuliar and you can go back to Tuliar with me. And so the, his truck comes and at this point I've been in this village for like three days and it's in the middle of the desert. And so this pickup truck comes and they end up saying, yeah, you can come with us, but you know, yeah, it's free for you. But if we're going to bring your motorcycle, it's going to cost you like 120,000 RAR or something like that, which is like, 40 bucks or something but like there that's like a lot of money or whatever you know so i was like i don't want to do that and so they say okay well you know there's another um truck that's going to tulio um which is the city i just come from and you can go with them and so i said okay and that only cost me like twenty thousand bucks or twenty thousand rer which looking back like all these are like really small amounts of money for like you know American yeah, what people dollars. are, dude, yeah, you're grabbing but, a 30, like a $30 Uber is nothing to people. Yeah, right? but again, I, I had been living there for two and a half years. This was my mindset. That was the amount of money I had in my pocket anyways. And, you know, I had to, I had to be pinching my pennies because who knows how far I was from a bank anyways. I couldn't be blowing money left and right. Right. But, um, so there's this truck and it's like an 18 wheeler. And the back is like, just like a crate filled with goods. And it's, like, wrapped in, like, tarp. And it's, like, 110 degrees out or whatever it is. And this crate is, like, filled with goods up to the top. And then when you get inside, 
there's people that are just laying in like the way we're crammed in there is like literally you're just laying in there on top of the the goods <laughs> and your face is like a couple inches from the the top of the the crate and then oh, you're like stuck in there it's like 120 degrees or whatever in there there's like uh, and i got in there and at this point you know i've been in madagascar for years i every time i went in anything the transportation situation was like you know pickup trucks and hang off the back of pickup trucks and super crowded and cargo ships and all this type of stuff so i was totally used to that stuff but when i got in this thing they told me this would be a seven hour drive and i was like no way like it took me seven hours on my motorcycle and i got caught behind one of these guys and they went like you know a mile an hour like imagine like an 18 wheeler like on like a completely unpaved desert road i'm just going super slow and i'm like dude i if i get in this truck i will be in here for like the next 30 hours just like lying on top of these goods with like an inch above my face like on the top of this like cargo container or whatever like and so i was in there lying in there we're about to take off my motorcycles in there and then i was just like yeah, get me out of here. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm gonna have like a panic attack if I if I actually stay in this thing. And so I got out, and that was the only time in my entire time in Madagascar I got out of like a a car because I was like, this is too like terrible or whatever. Too intense, man. Jesus. Yeah, like that. And so I got out, and I ended up meeting this mechanic, and he fixed my motorcycle, and it's fine. He just in the village because all these villages have like village mechanics here. Right. And what was wrong so, with the bike? sand got in one of the parts i couldn't tell you what the name of the part was but they just had to replace the part God. and and uh so i ended up riding it back uh riding the motorcycle back to tuliar where i met with a professor that i had known because the story i'd filmed i had worked on prior to that was chinese fishing vessels and this guy was um and he actually got me onto the Chinese fishing vessels where I had like a, a hidden camera. It was just my, it was just a phone, but like right. a hidden camera. And I kind of got like lost, you know, quote unquote on this <laughs> um, fishing port to get like footage of these fishing vessels, which people didn't know were there kind of. And that ended up going in a story kind of, but that's how I knew this guy. And he said, like, I just kind of ran into him when I was on my way back at Julia. And he said, you know, what story are you going to work on now? And I said, well, I'm going to Fort Dauphin because I want to write about um, this mining company, Rio Tinto, and some of the stuff that they're allegedly doing, you know, kind of investigate. And he said, no, that's not the story you should be working on. Oh. You should be working on a different, if you want to investigate mining company, you should mes- investigate the mining company based Tuliar and how they're affecting the Mikaya hunter-gatherers. They're the last indigenous group in Madagascar. Now, up until this point, the only thing I'd ever heard about these people were just before I started my motorcycle trip, a Peace Corps friend of mine said, hey, you know, if you're going out west, you should go to the Mikaya Museum because there's a museum to these hunter-gatherers. Like, a lot of people don't know there's still hunter-gatherers in Madagascar, but you should go there to check out the museum just, like, as a tourist. Right. And that was all I'd ever heard about them. And I was like, maybe I will do that, you know? And never in a million years did I think that I'd end up, you know, living with them and, like, writing about them and stuff. But I, so I said, okay, well, if I have time, and I'll, I'll do that. And so I ended up going all around Madagascar, 
um, going on a different road called the RN12, which was actually way worse than the RN10. And then I am going back up through the RN10 the other way around, um, which was fine at that point because I was used to the RN12, which was way worse. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the, when I did the RN10 again, it was like no problem. It's all relative. But, huh? Yeah. What is the road like? What uh, I know you'd said like it's unpaved, but is it just potholes everywhere? Is it super no, narrow? No, 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 no. Like it's, um, like just sand off, dirt? It's it's constantly changing what the road looks like. But it's like oh, man, picture that. Jeez. It's like I have a ton of pictures of it. Uh, no, I'm just like in my it's head, like, like it's like it's like yeah, it's like hard dirt, soft sand, rocks. Like don't don't even compare it to like a road with potholes. Like it's not even that's like too far removed. It's just completely. It's like sand and, and hard dirt and rocks and stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but so when I came back. I had, like, when I was in Fort Dauphin, I said, you know what, I want to investigate these hunter-gatherers also. So I made sure to wrap my investigation there up as quickly as possible. Um, and that ended up going nowhere. It didn't get published, um, even though there was some sketchy stuff there. But there wasn't enough hard evidence, really. Um, but I ended up going to uh, back up to the Juilliard area. And I hit this professor up and said, I mean, not when I got there, I was in contact with him the entire time and said, hey, like, so I'm interested in pursuing this story. Um, can you help me out? And he said, yeah, well, uh, I know a professor that's an expert on these hunter-gatherers. You can link up with him and he will help you out. And so I linked up with him and he basically told me all this stuff about like, hey, you need to like when you get there, these are the things you're going to need to do in order to be accepted by these hunter gatherers. Cause they're going to look at you like you have, you know, five heads at first. Cause they're going to be like, you know, who's this guy? And they said, okay, when you get there, you have to bring rum or no, no, you have to bring tobacco because tobacco is a huge part of the culture there. And they do like literally like ceremonies and rituals and stuff. When a newcomer comes with tobacco, you have to present it them in a specific way, which is like, you go seek out the um, oldest person in the village and then you like get on one knee and present it to them in your hands and wow. it, just all this stuff. And then I did all that stuff. And then they said, please make yourself at home. You're, you're one of us now. And I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. And I went there with, um, with um, a Malagasy person that spoke some English because I wanted to do uh, interviews and they had their like a unique dialect and I needed someone there to translate through their the dialect is called Mascuru, which is really different from mine and so i went there with this other person and we took an ox cart to get there for a couple of hours through the desert and eventually arrived in this like major baobab forest which is where their village was and um yeah i, I basically just told them hey i'm here to investigate this mining company um and i want to live with you guys and take pictures and interview you guys is that cool and they said well, <laughs> is that cool <laughs> and they said yeah and they said well the, the mining company you, you got your facts wrong the mining company is like 100 miles away that doesn't affect us um but if you'd like you can still stay and i was like yeah man of course and so i stayed and just kind of through the course of the time i was there i saw deforestation and stuff and just kind of casually asked about that Again, not really 
thinking I was going to make a story out of it, but just, you know, taking pictures of it and doing some, like, interviews with people mainly about, like, culture and stuff, just for my own sake, just because I thought it was really interesting to ask them, you know, their religious beliefs and all sorts of, you know, how they how they raise their families and stuff. And, and just through the course of that, we started getting deforestation stuff. And one of the stories I'd been working on earlier, you know, sorry to keep, like, running all over the place with the story, but, like, um, when I was doing, like, the Chinese fishing story, that was on just, like, Chinese fishing and, like, overfishing in general. And when I was doing that story, I met these uh, fishermen that said, hey, you know, if you want to investigate overfishing here, you need to investigate deforestation inland because there's such crazy deforestation and environmental degradation that it's driving people to become fishermen, thus worsening the overfishing problem. And so through that, I did a bunch of research and interviews and photography and stuff on deforestation and charcoal cultivation and stuff like that. What are they, um, or I guess why? What's the motivation behind the deforestation? Um, to, to make charcoal because they cook with charcoal. That's the primary uh, one as far as I can tell. And, um, I mean, charcoal is, you know, charcoal is, it's, a, it's, it's how they cook food over there, you know, charcoal and... Um, that's are, yeah people are, cut down is it charcoal like what i'm thinking like grills charcoal or it sounds uh, like you're saying something different like charcoal no I'm, no that's you know you have it right like they make they cut down trees and put them in a kiln um, made in the forest and that turns them into charcoal like okay. literally what you're thinking of like barbecue charcoal okay they use it all over africa oh, and man. Um, and it caused really bad deforestation but in the course of that you know, I actually went out with these um, charcoal makers, and we had to walk like 20 kilometers out um, just to get past all that's already been deforested to find original spiny thicket forest where they were still cutting it down. And along the way, you know, there's these really like kind of wild pictures I took of um, like just deforested landscapes, but the only trees that are like still there are baobab trees because baobab trees store so much water they can't be turned into charcoal and so it's just like only baobab trees that are alive and you know one of those pictures actually is in the manga base story but um so it just kind of happened it just kind of happened i just like when it was all over this wasn't even one of the stories i really thought i'd end up getting published and it ended up being like kind of the big one i got published um, as a front page story on Manga Bay about like how charcoal is affecting these hunter gatherers, and um, yeah, the the original question, <laughs> I like, what's there? Spent, like, what? I just spent like thirty minutes answering the question, then I forgot to answer the question. But uh, the question was on why did he? Why do they live in the forest? Well, it's because a, it's what they know, it's their culture, it's how they live, and also. I mean, yeah, it's just that it's it's how they live. You know, it's it's like saying to someone that lives anywhere, why don't you do something else? You know, yeah, it's, right. it's it is what it is. And you know, I don't. I mean, they. I think they. You know, they're not unhappy. You know, they have super strong communities, and um, you know, they're. I think they're doing all right, except for the deforestation stuff and and like all those. I mean, there's a ton of problems, obviously, but. As far as they're not like miserable, you know, it's not, yeah. like I think people think like, oh, they're poor. That means they must 
be like miserable no not not at all yeah dude there's like, a, a real happiness to simplicity right like you don't biggie small said it best man more money more problems well i wouldn't even think of it in those terms i would just think of it more along the lines of like look people have really strong communities over there they are surround they're basically this is life they're born and they're around their friends and then they you know grow up and eventually they're still around their friends and then they all have kids and their friends are their kids are friends and then they become grandparents and they're they're still friends with each other and their kids are still friends and now their grandkids are still like it's just like yeah. that community life dude Pe- people are just you know they're like you know they're not unhappy they're not like damn i miss tv which they they, they don't have you know i yeah. mean even I, you know, coming from an American background, I was I missed that stuff on and off, barely. But like the technology and stuff, it's, it's just it's not that important. I mean, it is important insofar as it like really contributes, you know, public health and and all those types of things. But like, you know, if you if you, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, they're not they don't like miss all these like gadgets and stuff. Right. Yeah, and, and man, I'm also thinking too, like if you don't have that desire for gadgets like what do you need all this money for that we constantly want to make in america right like it's right and i think there's like more and more people are talking about that stuff in the united states i I know there's a lot of popular books um you know sebastian younger wrote that book tribe he's been on the joe rogan podcast talking about this this that's kind of all what this is about um johan hari has a great book called lost connections which is all about this stuff you know way back in the day um, I forget his name. He was like the head of the political science department at Harvard, wrote the book Bowling Alone. It's kind of about this type of stuff. Huh. So I think more and more these ideas are, you know, being talked about. But yeah, I mean, that like that tight knit community stuff is kind of, you know, more like it, it's it's like a it's a cool thing to see. Yeah, I, I bet. And it's it is funny how it doesn't. um us being like capitalistic or meritocratic i always screw that word up but like just that like competitive part of american culture of like wanting to be the best whatever like however you want to define it versus relational culture and like i'm i'm part of this this is just my my circle and that's what i'm gonna stay in it uh it's interesting to me i I think about that a lot actually um so did you actually go through like a welcoming ritual yeah, I actually went through a bunch of them. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like, what is... Yeah. Um, what is, what is so it? we would... When I got there, we did what I what I said, you know, handed over the tobacco. Um, but then they said to me, um, well, let's get rum, because that's also part of the ritual. The guy I spoke to, I guess, was wrong about that. So we got rum, and we... We did like three rituals, if I remember correctly. I have like some of them on camera, but it was like it would take, if I remember this correctly, like shells, and I actually brought one of them home. Um, and they would put them down at the base of a what they would call like a sacred tamarind tree, and fill it with like tobacco, I think, if I remember correctly. And we would take like some shots. And, oh, that's why you can't remember it so well. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you put like your hand at the base of the tree, and the chief of the village, um, his name was Chef Mandala. He he would like 
say some words for a couple of minutes and and then you'd like make a wish and it actually was kind of interesting because originally we weren't going to do that one and we were all sitting around the campfire which was my first night in the village and we were taking shots frankly of rum and there's just a point where like all these hunter gatherers were sitting in the around the campfire and then there I was you know and they're asking me about my trip and I'm just kind of recounting the trip in the same way that I am to you right now to them but I'm doing it in Malagasy and I just remember thinking like damn this is like really cool like <laughs> like like I'm just like casually talking to these hunter gatherers and at one point they said to me one of them said to me why do, why are you here like why 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 with us because again this was after it turned out that the base Thule, our mining story was going nowhere and before the deforestation story went anywhere and so i just said in malagasy like i'm here for the same reason i'm in madagascar which is because i want to like understand cultures and experience cultures and find out how best to live my life going forward and i kind of went off on that for a little bit and then they said hey we want to take you to this tree to do this ritual and they said the words and did all this stuff and then told me to make a wish and and then we do a couple more ceremonies before they would let me in what they called their sacred forest which was one of the most beautiful if not the most beautiful forest i've ever seen there's a picture of it on my instagram um but it's of like um like it's just all massive baobab trees and it's really really cool looking and they're like the only people that are that ever go in it and then i guess me also but it was a uh, was really cool so yeah we did a bunch of ceremonies rituals stuff like that so there and i guess would you would it be like their religion is nature it, uh, or is that like just an over way to put it i wouldn't put it so explicitly like right? I, don't, I don't think they think of it in those terms i did ask them what are your religious views and they said something to the effect of like missionaries were here but they left because they realized we weren't going to adopt their views and they i said like what are your religious views and they said well it's kind of just like we feel a connection to our ancestors and then i said well what do you think happens after you die and i if i remember correctly they said nothing they said we don't think anything happens after you die but but we do believe in um preserving the they, they said one thing that i really liked which i think applies not just to them but to all of us not to sound too you know whatever but uh <laughs> they're saying how like you know yeah what you're saying like religious views is their religiosity tied to nature well it's like um we view nature as like something that gets passed down to us so it's our connection to our ancestors it's something we rely on right. for our survival for our life and it's something we pass down so it's our it's like our bridge to future generations also it's, it's something they i think value and respect and take very seriously and um you know i wish everyone on earth did frankly but, Dude, uh, i i heard i forget what it was or even where but it was like People, people shit on the earth like the earth needs us. We're actually the things that need the earth, right? Like it's so easy to take it for granted and not do little things, um, just overuse, um, whatever chemicals, deforestation stuff like that. And you act like 
the earth owes you this, where you should be owing, you owe your existence to the earth. Um, and I'm so, I'm actually kind of the more I think about that, the more I'm like, I'm surprised that's not more of a religious push is like, almost like what you were saying, thanking the earth, like just having this relationship of gratitude towards nature for providing for you more so yeah, than like I mean, believing. Just understanding that a nature has like intrinsic value. Like it's just obviously important to not see our planet just being destroyed all around us. And B, even if you don't care about all that stuff, which I don't know why anyone would, but even if you don't care about all that stuff, we obviously rely on it. I mean, just obviously. Yeah. I mean, when people say like you're destroying the environment, okay, swap out the word the for my. You right. know, it's you're destroying our environment. You know, it's the air we breathe. It's just it's pretty obvious. You know, but, uh, you know whatever. Not so good. Or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, no, I just I um I, I'm in my head. I'm just thinking like, because it's funny if when they said what what happens when you die and it's like nothing, man. You just go in the ground. Like, imagine if that mindset replaced religious beliefs, and then what would people what would people look to for spirituality if they didn't if they didn't think heaven and hell? It would probably be nature, right? I have no idea, but who knows? <laughs> I yeah. mean, we should just. I mean, just not destroy our own planet it's just it's, it's a radical idea but like just don't do everything in our power to destroy the because you know, uh, it's our planet we live on it you know why would anyone try and burn their own house down yeah right but uh but it seems like people don't but whatever you know whatever but yeah man uh when, I mean, well, i'm yeah, wondering sorry. was part of you did you discover you wanted to be like a photojournalist guy while in Madagascar? Is that something yes, that you had always? 100%. No, I, I never took a photography course. I never owned a camera that wasn't, you know, just like a cheap whatever camera. And when I was in Madagascar, the thing that happened was um, this is what happened. So, so like I said, the commune I lived in, which was 40,000 people, but it was very rural, so it's like 40,000 people spread out over maybe 1,000 villages over many, many, many miles in the mountains. Um, it was all bamboo villages, and there's no electricity grid. There's no running water. Um, and yet you started seeing these orange satellite dishes popping up in the countryside that, um, you know, it just made no sense. These, like, random orange satellite dishes popping up. And then you would come to find out that they were connected to Chinese TV. And then you saw, um, like, these murals almost being painted all over Madagascar on the communes, which were the mayor's office buildings, basically. Like, in my commune, oh, so commune, like, the commune means, like, the equivalent of county, kind of, like what I was just referring to. But it also means the mayor's office building. They would also call it the commune. Okay. Um, so I'll try not to, like, You're cutting out a little bit again, uh, Sam, with the wind and the right. mic. Can you hear me now? Yeah, just a little windy. Okay. So sorry. commune um, is the mayor. So are, am I trying to picture like town hall kind of a thing? No, picture like a concrete block. Like just like a, a small concrete square building. Okay. And it's not like a town hall. It's literally like he – it's his office. Like one person's office is in there. And 
or it's not even whatever that those details don't really matter it's not necessarily drums but whatever that, those gotcha. details don't matter what are the but murals of of chinese flags and they would have the inscription above in french satellite dishes for 10,000 african villages and um basically when this happened i was like okay something's going down like why why is china like you know giving teeth like Chinese TV to like all these rural villages and painting these murals. And then there was a kind of very underreported story, but I saw it reported somewhere that said there was a three, if I'm, I think that was the number three, it was like a year ago now, but $3 billion deal between the Chinese government and a private Malagasy fishing organization that would ensure them 10 years fishing rights and the ability to use 330 Chinese fishing vessels off the west and southern coast of Madagascar, at least at first, eventually all over Madagascar. Um, and they, um, yeah, that's what this deal was. And I remember thinking, like, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of Malagasy people that rely on fish. This is obviously not a good situation. I had, like, six months left in my Peace Corps service at that time. And I said, and at this point in time, I was already pretty into um, uh, photography just because I got into it when I was over there. And I said, I'm going to stay after, investigate this stuff, and become like kind of a journalist. And I read everything I could read on journalism, read tons of journalists' memoirs, like freelance journalists, how do you kind of just become a freelance journalist, read all these memoirs, everything from, you know, Dexter Filkins to you know, Christopher Hitchens, Anderson Cooper, I mean, all these people's memoirs and just kind of picked out, okay, how do they do this? How can I do this? And so I ended up figuring, okay, so you pitch stories to news organizations. And so I reached out to, I mean, tons and tons and tons of websites and media organizations saying, hey, you know, here's who I am. Here's my background. Could I investigate this stuff? And write about it for you guys and it's hard to do that because there's liability issues and companies really don't want to take a risk on someone that's never had something published before so what i ended up doing was i said okay i gotta get something published and one of the editors actually got back to me and said you need to get something published i'm just letting you know like you're gonna hit up all these media organizations none of them are gonna publish your work unless you already have something published before in it because they're not gonna take the time if they've never even seen a writing sample you know let me ask you a question because i know nothing about this process either um why are you asking them if they're going to be interested in the story? Don't you just do the story first and then you, whatever you have your pictures, you have your, your words and you like that, give them yeah. a, a file and it's like, Hey man, do you want to publish this? That is one way to do it. But I actually met with a journalist in Madagascar and he told me that's like what people think, but you, you got to do it the other way because, um, Actually, I met with different people that would give me contradictory advice. You know, some people would say that, and some people would say, no, you got to get it approved beforehand. But I think the takeaway was everyone basically saying it's better to get it approved beforehand. If you can't and you need to get it approved after the fact, then obviously that's yeah. – yeah, Well, that's, I mean it makes – it's funny because it makes more sense, right? Because if it's approved, then you know, all right, I get the information, I do it, I then have a market, right? Like I, it will get got. Someone will right. pay me for it. I, where I mean, I, yeah, sorry. No, no, but I'm just the other way. It's like you're just hoping someone finds this interesting enough to purchase. And it, 
I guess waste is a strong word, but if your if your goal is to get it published, you could waste weeks or story I mean, after story if no one's interested in it. I mean, one of the stories I did work on, um, I worked on for like three weeks, and that that was the only one that did not get published. That actually, I worked on more time <laughs> than any of the other stories I worked on, and that was the only one that didn't get published. What uh, what was that about? It was that mining company Rio Tinto in uh, uh, southeast Madagascar. There, there was just too much hearsay. There was a lot of allegations. There was very sketchy stuff, but there was there was not enough hard evidence. And, gotcha. and I was actually talked to some major com- major media companies, and they basically said. We can't publish it. It's it just doesn't hold up. There's not enough hard evidence. Gotcha. Um, I mean, tons of interviews, but that's like hearsay evidence, I guess. Yeah. Um. But um, yeah. So I said, okay, I need to get something published, um, so that these people will take me more seriously. And so what I did was I went to um, there was this village called Budihasana, which was way in the mountains and at the time i saw it it was the most remote village i'd ever seen since then it's not but at the time it was the most remote village i'd ever seen because as a peace corps health worker one of the things i did i didn't do this that often but i always really loved when i did it is i would go with the local health workers called midwives or that's the english word i guess yeah midwives okay um deep into the countryside deep deep you know hiking hours into the countryside to give vaccines to um, people in these really remote villages babies in these really remote villages and it was always really cool to get to go all the way out there just really insanely beautiful landscapes really isolated unique villages really awesome and it would always blow people's minds when you roll up and say like which is like the local greeting and people like you know do a double take because like i i said it like big white guy with a beard or whatever um <laughs> but um anyways we passed these village and it was like an hour and a half's walk from the nearest road about a half hour's walk from the nearest village um and it was this tiny village of like four or five bamboo huts on the top of a mountain or i guess like a big hill tiny mountain whatever you want to call it and uh, um and it was just on the top of this mountain and i took pictures of it and was like whoa that's so cool you know and that was when i first got there you know, to, to site. I was at site for a couple of months, maybe at that point. And then at this point in time, when I'm trying to get into journalism, this is like, you know, a year and a half into my service or something like that. I went back there with a chicken, um, which is like the, like a cultural thing. And I said to them <laughs> like, Hey, let's eat this chicken. Um, and could we all have dinner tonight. And, you know, I, I provided the chicken and like a live you walked in with a live chicken or you walked in with like a, a rotisserie yeah a live chicken <laughs> wow and um let's eat this chicken and then afterwards um i have my tent could i could i stay here the night and i'll you know and they said of course you could stay and i also did like a malaria lesson that was like a thing I, that was like my job kind of malaria lessons and so i did that and they said well you know don't you obviously don't have to stay in a tent you can stay in our village um, which was my experience. I always, I would always bring a tent whenever I was trying to stay somewhere. And I would always say, let me stay in this tent. And they would always say, you cannot stay in that tent. Please stay in our village. We will make up a spare bed or find something for you. Just that's that hospitality I'm talking about. And so when I was there, they said, okay, well stay in our village. And I stayed in the village and I ended up saying like, Hey, is it okay if I stay longer? Which this wasn't my, 
plan necessarily originally. I was kind of just going to take it by ear. And I said, it's okay if I stay longer so that I could take pictures and interview you guys and write about it so I can show like Malagasy culture, which I love to like my American friends and family and just people in America. And they said, yes. And so I ended up living there for a week and I was the first foreigner they told me ever to even see their village. And I lived with them for a week and conducted all these interviews. And um, I ended up getting that published in like a, I don't even know, five, six, seven page article with like some pictures um, on a website called mypeacecorestory.com. And so that was, that was like the thing I got published. And then from there, that was like my, my, that was what I would use to, to eventually get my other stuff published. And yeah. No, I'm almost like thinking, so that counted mypeacecorestory.com. It was just to show off kind of photography and writing skills. Yeah, yeah. It, I wasn't like an investigation by any means, but Oh no, no, no. I'm not I'm I guess what I'm thinking in my head is like couldn't you have almost made your own website and published your own stuff and then presented it as like, yeah, I've been published on you know, mycrazyroadtrips.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. You um, know, or well, would I that guess, not but... work because they like check into like news agencies care more about I... who's publishing? I have no idea, honestly. I um, I don't know, but yeah, I, I have no idea. <laughs> gotcha. And you're trying, uh, the hope is to be published by, um, like American news agencies, or are you trying to be like local in Madagascar through like their uh, media? Not local in Madagascar, but American or international or something like that. And it ended up, my stuff ended up getting published on, um, mangabay.com which is a really, really underrated website, in my opinion. I honestly had never heard of them before I got published by them. But they – it's like an environmental um, news website, but it's like international environmental news, and it's all like freelancers um, doing like exactly what I did, like investigate environmental stories around the world, and they publish them. And um, really cool stories, really underrated. Like I'm surprised they're not more famous. I mean they do have millions of readers, but – I'm surprised it's not even bigger. Yeah, I I never heard of them. Um, Mon- yeah. Manga Bay. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Manga Bay actually, it, it actually uh, it started. I don't know if it started in Madagascar or something like that, but Manga Bay is actually it means in Malagasy "big blue," and it's uh, hmm. it's it's named after like an island in Madagascar or something like that off the coast of Madagascar called Manga Bay, something, something like that. But it's just a coincidence at this point. Cause it's, uh, it's just international stuff. They just, but yeah, just kind of a random fact. It comes from Madagascar. Madagascar. How did, when the Chinese murals were going up and the um, satellite dishes for Chinese TV, how did the people there take that? Was it like welcome? Did they want more TV options? Um, well, they weren't like insanely widespread. It wasn't like there was these satellite dishes on every house. I mean, they're still pretty rare. So it wasn't, it just wasn't really part of the conversation. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering about that. It's so, so much of what you're saying is just so, I mean, it's foreign, man. It's so hard for a guy in Delaware to picture. Like I've never been, I've gone Mexico, but like not just picturing and trying to understand all those little things, um, all the little details of life is just so it's difficult. Yeah, man. It's, it's a lot to take in and, uh, it's a lot to take in when I was there also, (laughs) but, uh, like, I mean, even Madagascar is not representative of Africa. Madagascar is my understanding 
like very different than Africa in the sense that it's even more. And I say this as someone that hasn't been to the rest of Africa. This is just what I've heard. It's more like village centric even than the rest of Africa. Like there were these two backpackers that I didn't meet, but another one of my Peace Corps friends met that had spent like a year backpacking around Africa and then they ended it up in Madagascar. And when they got here, apparently they were just like, we have never seen anything like this. Like it is, it's just all villages, you know, it's, it's like straight up. And, um, it's not a small place. It's a, it's a big Island. When you say that's actually something, man, when you say villages, are we talking like, like in my head, I keep trying to think of like a small town, you know? So like I'm picturing like one gas station, one little grocery store, you know, stoplights. Like what are, what are these villages? Like three, Um, four homes, just the family compound of houses. It depends where you are in the country, I guess. But on the East Coast, the homes would be made of, like, bamboo or maybe wood, but mainly bamboo. And it would be, like, extended families and then friends of families and their families and stuff. That that would be the villages. But, yeah, the villages are very, like, family-centric. You know, it would be, like, there's a main kind of family in the, in the village, in the hamlet. You know, that's, like... Okay. You know, and then some of them will be the extended family and some of them will be a couple of families. And a lot of it's like, this is one family, but then the next village is another family and everyone's kind of friends or whatever. Gotcha. Do they do like the mayor thing? Like is the oldest, the, the original family there, um, like the mayors of it? Or they don't even look at it like that either? Um, I mean, there is like, <laughs> there are, there's a mayor, but it's not for a village. The mayor would be for the commune. And that's elected. And and then there's something called Chef Fukuntani, which means, like, chief of the Fukuntani. Fukuntani is, like, kind of a collection of villages. And I think that's elected. I actually don't know how they come up with who is the chef, but who's the chief. But, yeah, that's it's, like, all sorts of stuff uh, that they, like, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that. Huh. Yeah, because I'm just, like... Now I'm just rethinking the whole g- structure of here. Like, what about crime-wise? Was there an issue, like, with – because, like, why, why do you have, like, a mayor? Why do you have people in charge, right? Well, yeah. they take care of your roads. They t- make sure crime gets handled. You know, they run police departments, stuff like that. So I'm wondering if it's so family and tribal, is there not a lot of need for government in that sense, you know? Well, I'll say this, like, taking a central service like the fire department here in the United States, that exists in cities in Madagascar, you know, but in the countryside, there's not, like, hydrants, you know, and what happens when a house burns down? I never saw this with my own eyes, but one of my good friends in Peace Corps, who was my site mate, which meant he was in my commune, he wasn't in my village, he was in my commune, he was, like, uh, five kilometers away from me or something like that, his village actually had a fire actually that's not true i did see one fire now that I think about it. but his village did have a fire and like the whole you know village is starting to like burn down you know and this is in the middle of the night and like his neighbors like came to his house and like you know woke him up he's like you know kyle kyle wake up there's like there's a fire and everyone in the village and the surrounding villages they're all grabbing buckets and running to the the river or the stream the well or whatever it is and they're all just running back and forth. Like my friend told me he did like I think I remember he said like six, seven, eight, ten trips, like 
just back and forth, like, you know, run into the, to the river, run back with these buckets and everyone is just doing that to put, put out the fires. Right. And so, yeah, they, they kind of deal with problems in house like that. They just kind of have ways of dealing with them. Yeah. 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 The, um, personal responsibility to one another, man. God, um, yeah, just, I can't, I couldn't imagine life without a faucet of running water. <laughs> uh, like, I mean, I'm like telling that. you, man, you get used to that type of stuff really, really quickly. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, but, so uh, do you have like, do you gather water and then have what, like shower wise, do you actually shower? Yeah, I would shower. I would, uh, I had a well, I, my house was like at the top of a hill kind of, and there was a well at the bottom of the hill and I would, um, go uh like every day and fill up buckets at the well and bring it back and i would um yeah that'd be my i I had a filter and then we would have to drip like chlorine into our water to like sanitize it or whatever and so that was my drinking water and then that was also my shower water like i would just bathe with that water gotcha do you have, do you put it, and this might be super ignorant of me because I really don't know. Is it like a shower faucet head and there's just like a bucket of water up top that regulates the flow? Or are you doing like no, bird bath I kind of like, stuff? I, I have a bucket of water and a cup and I'm pouring water in my head. Golly day. Golly yeah. day. Okay, man. In my backyard. Yeah. In my backyard. Nice. <laughs> swim, swim trunks or do you just let it all hang out? Uh, whatever I felt like doing that day, I guess. <laughs> what do you, um, what do you miss most about it? About being over there? Uh, man, what do I miss most? I mean, for one, it was just so beautiful. Like, I lived in such an insanely, absurdly beautiful part of the world. Just like mountains and rivers and villages and rice fields and I was near the ocean and just like, I miss that. I miss, um, you know, the community, like everyone knows everyone. I miss the vacations I went on. They were absolutely unreal. And they were like every weekend. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was just like going to the beach with my friends, but it's like, you're going to like this unbelievably beautiful, like isolated beach with like lemurs and stuff. And it's just like, you're with all your best friends and that's just like your weekend. And I miss that stuff. Miss the adventures, miss the freedom. Uh, yeah, man, it, it was totally awesome. I would totally recommend people to check out the Peace Corps if they're interested in this type of stuff. Yeah, it seems um, really unique experience. Is there like a Peace Corps leader there that's given you a job? Because it seemed like you did have a ton of freedom to kind of roll around and just figure out what you wanted to do. It depends on the country, and it depends on the country director, and it depends on what you are there for. So I was a health volunteer and for health and ag volunteers agriculture volunteers we we were tasked with coming up with our own projects and we would come up with our own projects and not a whole lot of oversight and i mean just if you're the type of person that joins the peace corps like first off you're not just joining the peace corps like you have to apply it's like competitive you know i was going to peace recorded recruiters like every year maybe twice a year for like five years before joining the peace corps just ask them you know hey what can i do to make myself more competitive and by the time i got in i think they told us only nine percent of the people that applied to the peace corps get in 
Holy shit, dude! It's that competitive. Yeah. I had no idea. It, it's pretty competitive, uh, alleg- yeah, allegedly. That's what they. I mean, not allegedly. That's what they told us. I believe it. But right, it's it's competitive, and um, yeah, like I. Just because that many know, people are fighting over those type of experiences, like what you said, two years in Madagascar. And there's also not a lot of positions. I mean, there's only seven thousand Peace Corps volunteers around the world at any given moment. So, you know, you, you don't have to have that many people applying for it to, for a lot of people not to be able to get in. Gotcha. And um, so if you're the type of person that's already been applying and got in, and by the time you get in, like, then you have to wait, and the whole application process is like a year, you know, you're not just going to sit on your hands while you're over there, most likely. You know, you're probably going to find one or two things to, to do project-wise. And so people people do projects. Basically, everyone do projects that I know. And you don't have that oversight. You're just going to do them on your own and. You know, malaria was really big where I lived, and so my thing was to go and hike into the really deep kind of rural parts of my commune, you know, whether that meant biking for a day or hiking for a day, and um, talking about malaria and signs and symptoms, and I come up with games for the kids and stuff, and um, that was that was kind of what I did. Gotcha. Man, um, how sick did you get while you were over there? You had to catch Not, something at some point, right? I, I, I was kind of an aberration from most Peace Corps volunteers in that I did not really get sick. You know, I had some issues here and there, but overall, I, I my health was perfectly fine. I got food poisoning when I was with those hunter-gatherers, <laughs> and I got food poisoning at one other time in my service. But other than that, I had good health. I never even had so much as a cold. Um, and not only that, but like things like I've had heartburn my entire life. Like, like even right now, I mean, not this second, but like, you know, at this point in my life, I, I have heartburn all the time. The only time in my life I had no heartburn was in Madagascar. And when I left, like prior to leaving from Madagascar, I actually went to a doctor at one point in time, maybe for a checkup or physical or something. And I mentioned, uh, you know, I was like, Hey doc, you know, I got like, crazy heartburn all the time what's the deal with this you know like how can i what should i do and he said well the issue is you're eating too many tomato-based products you know too much ketchup too much pizza and when i was in madagascar i never had more tomatoes in my life than when i was in madagascar i had like a kilo of tomatoes every day with my food that i would make and i never had heartburn literally never so it's not tomatoes. I don't know what it is, but I don't know if it's like American processed food. That's just like a theory, you know, who knows what it is, but right. I did not have uh, heartburn when I was over there. So in some ways my health is, you know, kind of good, like better over there. Yeah. So eating wise, is that just like just straight, fresh, fresh, fresh? Like we're not like no microwave meals and quick shit like that. Right. Or am I wrong about that? Uh, definitely no microwave stuff. Definitely not. I don't think I saw a microwave my entire time over there. And, uh, it was, well, it's like this. So rice is huge over there. Allegedly, I don't know if this is true. They eat more rice per capita than anyone else on earth. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I heard. Take that with a grain of salt. I don't know if that's true, but there are rice fields everywhere and people eat rice at least two meals a day, if not three meals a day in my experience. For the vast majority of the country, there are some pockets of the country where that's not part of the culture, but for the most part, it is. And how, are, how are they flavoring it? 
Is it like real simple or what? They they would add. Well, there are a couple of things. One is something called anana, which was anana. like basically leaves and plants from the forest, like you know, like gathering plants from the forest, and you know, a lot of them they would grow, you know, stuff like that. But um, and they would like it was like greens, you know, greens. And they would add that to the rice, a lot of people, and then... And it's like you know, an herby, like it just, I, I don't know, what it would, it can you compare like, it to something? The only reason it's hard for me to compare is honestly because here in the States I eat like no vegetables, so I can't even like compare it to <laughs> Okay. But it, it just tastes like greens, I, I don't know. What I, I would, what I would imagine like collard greens taste like, though I've never had collard greens but I would imagine they taste the same. Oh, okay. And, and um, it's honestly good. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of stuff they would eat. Some of them, you know, some of the stuff they'd eat from the forest was, like, I didn't like. There was this one thing going on Givi, which is, like, super bitter, and I, I, I couldn't eat it. It was nasty. And, um, but they eat that, and they eat, you know, vegetables. And, I mean, it's just, like, everything is, like, you know, like natural, fresh. There's, there's just stuff growing all over the place, like food. You know, there's a lot of agroforest. Like, you know, you'll look in a forest and then you'll realize, like, oh, these are all like fruit trees. That's like everywhere. And so there's that stuff. And then people are eating like chickens and you know, cows, whatever. And but for me, you're I, you're cutting out again on us, Sam. Sorry, sorry man. Can you hear me now? Yeah, a little better. And for me, what I would eat is there was like a little market near my house, um, which was a lady that would sell vegetables, basically. And there's only a couple of these in my entire commune, um, but she would sell like tomatoes and potatoes. And those were pretty reliable. And then sometimes she would also have other foods. Um, but those were the big two, tomatoes and toma- potatoes and also onions. But I, you know, I don't, I don't really like onions. And so I would have that with rice like all the time tomatoes and potatoes and rice gotcha yeah i was actually wondering about that like um like lack of a central kind of supermarket or grocer versus like are people kind of self-sustaining where everybody's got a couple chickens everybody's got like a cow or something everybody's got some fruit trees in their backyard or it's just all out naturally where you can just Um, go and find it on your own chickens are very common not ev- definitely not everyone has cows. That's like kind of like a definitely not everyone has cows. That's like kind of more rare. That's more like a thing at the market. You know, people would sell cows and you'd go to the market and get like pieces of meat or whatever. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, people would have like plots of land and you know, you'll like go out with people like into the mountains like really far and they'll be like, This is my orange tree. And it's like a, <laughs> an hour hike into the mountains. And or you'll go like an hour hike in the mountains, and there'll be like a plot of land just growing cassava, and they're like, "This is my cassava plot," and they'll they'll take up the cassava, which is huge over in Madagascar, um, and they'll bring it back to to their to their village. Got you. And is it like actually theirs, or do you think like there's theirs, there, there's yeah. like thirty different people that say this is mine? No, no, it's it's <laughs> uh, maybe there's a little bit of what you're saying, but. A lot of it is, it's theirs. Wow. Dude, again, that's just, it, it's it's so trippy. So trippy to try to picture. Like, But then again, you know, like it, if you, 
it just um, it's i don't know it's like how stuff was at some point in time it's just a different time you know almost like an alternative reality no i think that uh comparison is spot on yeah 100 percent. yeah man so why'd you come back it's a uh it, that's just what it is it's a two-year commitment and uh you, you know i'm happy to be I was going to say, cause, well, no, you said you're at visa, you stayed doing the freelance till your visa ran out. Did you not yeah. want to like reapply? Would they not let you reapply? Well, to, to reapply for a visa, first of all, at the time I was in the wind, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was not with an organization. I had three months of health insurance post fee score oh. and, um, you know, I wasn't just going to stay there indefinitely with no money, no job, you know? Gotcha. Um, but, um, you, you can't just re-up your visa. You have to, I think it's easy to get a visa, my understanding, maybe I'm wrong about that, but you have to leave the country. So I would I would have had to fly to another place and then fly back to get a visa to stay for three more months. That's how long the visas were, I think. Oh, wow. And uh, so, no, that wasn't in the cards. And, and I'd been gone for a really long time, you know, two and a half years. I was ready to get back and see my friends and family and stuff. Gotcha. Um, what... Did you um? Do you have dreams? As far as like when you go to sleep, do you remember your dreams? When I was there, or no. Uh, I in general. I I yeah I dream. <laughs> okay, well, no, like I'm I'm not much of a dreamer, and it sounds weird like when you say it. I mean, I have dreams, I have goals, but like when I go to bed, I don't wake up being like, oh shit, I had a dream. But what I was wondering is, when you were over there, what language did you dream in? Oh, that's actually an interesting question. I dreamt i think mainly in english but when i was over there i did dream about madagascar a lot like i my dreams have, took place in madagascar but it's actually kind of interesting because when i first got there and when i first got there it was a completely um i mean it was just like you know an overwhelming of the senses so to speak just like because prior to going there you know i studied madagascar in college actually because i was you know like i said into Madagascar and um, you know for an African politics class I took I did like case studies on it and I studied um, slash and burn agriculture which is a form of agriculture where they you know, it, as the name suggests you know they slash and burn they cut down the, the forest and then burn it so that they can raise the land and grow agriculture right and um, which is terrible because it causes like really bad soil erosion and stuff but um, you know I had read about it heard about it written about it for just classes but i was like i wonder how long it's going to be before i like see it when i'm there you know and when i flew into south africa which is where we went to first on a layover to madagascar when you're flying in you look out the windows and it looks just like florida you know miami <laughs> you know when you're looking out the windows it looks like it's like a modern city with like those like kind of pink roofs, you know, if you've ever flown into like Fort Lauderdale or whatever, like those Florida looking houses. Yeah. And then when you get in there, South Africa, you know, we were in Johannesburg. It's like one of the biggest airports in the world. Super modern. You know, it just feels like you're in a part of America or, or even more modern, frankly, right. that airport. Because it was like one of the most developed, best airports in the world or something like that. And from there, we went to Madagascar. And flying into Madagascar, like, you know, we're on this tiny plane. It's like a two-hour, three-hour flight from Johannesburg to Antanarivo, which is the capital of Madagascar. 
and we're flying into an international airport in the capital city. And I just remember as we're going down, like looking out the windows and you see like fires, like, like not even in Madagascar yet. I'm already seeing like the slash and burn stuff, just like flying into Madagascar. And then like, as we're getting really close, like we're about to land, you're just looking out the window and it's just like villages. And you're like, aren't we flying into like the capital city? Like, you know, <laughs> and it's just like villages. And, um, when you finally land, you know, then we landed and we like drove for a couple hours to this place called Montesu, which is where we trained for the first three months. And you're just, it's a complete like overwhelming of the senses, so to speak. And a couple of days in, I went to my, to bring this back to uh, dreams or whatever. I went to the Peace Corps medical officer, doctor. And I said, Hey doc, like, I think I, these malaria pills I'm taking are giving me crazy dreams because I'm having like really vivid, like the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. And he was like, no, that's not, that that's a side effect to a type of malaria medicine, but it's not all malaria medicine and the type of pill you're taking, doxycycline, malaria, uh, vivid dreams are not a side effect. You're having vivid dreams just because your brain is like on overload because it's seeing all this stuff. And that was my experience, like, throughout my time in Madagascar. I had the most vivid dreams I ever had in my life. Were you a superhero in the dreams? No, <laughs> or was it just, I, like, ordinary, I, average stuff? Just random dreams, but they were, like, super vivid. Yeah, yeah. You know, remember them the next day. They're, like, sharp while you're having them. Gotcha. I didn't know if, like, you would, like, turn into a lion in one, you know, and, like, you're just – all the subconscious stuff's coming out or if it was just kind of, like, everyday life. You know? No, yeah, it was it was crazy. I, I don't remember the specifics at this point, but I mean, I remember having that conversation and feeling like that throughout the entire time I was there. Man, man. Okay, so then, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that because you seem to love. Do you still get into the freelance journalism stuff here, or is it just not as fun because it's America and not Madagascar? Um. Well, it's not even that. It's just that's just not what I'm doing now. I'm doing other stuff. But um, who knows? Maybe if I change careers, I'd get back into journalism stuff eventually. But that's not what I'm at right now. Gotcha. How nervous were you, dude, getting on that boat with the, the camera when you did, like, the undercover thing? Like, your heart's pounding like crazy. You're trying uh, to play it cool. The Chinese uh, fishing thing. I – well, dude, looking back, like – I cannot believe I did some of this stuff. Like, it almost feels like a different person. Um, at the time, I, I was keeping it cool, but looking back, I'm like, Jesus, I can't believe I did that stuff. But, uh, yeah, at the time, I mean, the, the way we were going to do it was the <laughs> to get onto the port for something unrelated. And prior to going on, I had spoken with some NGO workers, and they said, you know, you want to write a story about these Chinese fishing vessels? Well, it's too late because the Chinese fishing vessels, they, they already packed up. The, the deal got reneged on. And then they told me, no, that's what everyone thinks. But the reality is they're, st they're still here. And so he said, yeah, the reality is they're still here. And he said, well, we have, um, I have clearance to get onto the boat, onto the port. And so what we're going to do is, if you're if you want to, um, you'll come with me and we will say that you're here to interview this guy um, as a journalist, but 
um, or as an academic or something. I had some cover. I don't remember. But but we knew that that guy was out of town. So the idea was I was going to go on this port with a camera and get lost and um, film these Chinese fishermen. And, you know, there was like a soldier checkpoint and yeah, man, I mean, just like, yeah, don't let them see that you're filming this or it's not going to be good. But um, went onto the board, saw Chinese fishermen there with straw broom hats, eating with chopsticks. Um, I mean, it was, it was what the whole country thought was not there anymore. And um, the footage actually did not come out great. So what I ended up doing was having a fisherman just take me up to the side of the Chinese fishing vessels and I took pictures and I have pictures of those Chinese fishermen. Okay. Um, and those got published, but, um, the, the deal actually did get legitimately reneged on by the new government led by Andrei Rajalin, um, who's the president of Madagascar now, um, just prior to the story getting published anyway. So they were, they were kicked out before the stuff story got published anyways. But, um, yeah, that was that was an interesting one, I guess. Do you <laughs> so if you get caught, are you thinking like, man, I'm gonna get shot, I'm gonna get beat no, up, no, I'm gonna get not. jailed? No, no, no. Like, how serious I, would it have been? Do you know? Um, I, I don't know. I think it would probably be somewhere in the range of them just taking the phone and throwing it in the ocean to, <laughs> um, you know, maybe something of an incident where I'd have to bribe my way out. Gotcha. But who knows? Yeah. Right. I feel I feel like you should make it more deadly the next time you tell it. Like every year, every year you get older, there should be more soldiers there, and it should just be way more intense. You know, like you have to escape somehow, maybe some fence hopping, chase. Who knows, man? But I guess that was the closest I'll ever be to being a spy. That's cool. Right? Yeah, that's I don't know, man. That's that's neat. Um, man, that was that was a lot. I've never given that much thought to an African country before and the experience, man. It was, su I think you literally said like 40 different things that I have to Google to just try to like, see what they are, you know? Well, yeah, man, if you're interested in the story, it's, uh, it's mangabay.com is the website and the story, uh, it's called, I think it's called how demand for charcoal is threatening Madagascar's last hunter gatherers. And it was, uh, their front page story at the time. Yeah, right. The need for charcoal. Huh. Cool. Yeah. Manga Bay. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. And uh, if you want to see like pictures I was talking about, that's my Instagram uh, at Samuel Freed, S A M U E L F R I E D. And it's just like Madagascar pictures. Yeah. I'm definitely want to uh, almost like look at it while I listen to you tell these, um, like when I re listen and edit and stuff like that, man. Just to have those images because like i said for me man being a layman it is so hard to to picture what you're talking normally it's not right like people tell you a story you can like almost put yourself in it i i can't like listening to it i'm like i'm, I'm so lost <laughs> yeah man i mean a lot of these stories if not all these stories have like coinciding pictures on my um instagram and awesome. um like when i would post the pictures i would try and post like a story that goes along with them that's maybe just a couple of paragraphs Right. <laughs> that uh, kind Bless of explains you. it. And and there's a ton of other stories on that Instagram page that I cool. didn't go into. Sweet. Sweet. Sam, not Samuel. Well, man, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, come on and share those stories, man. It was uh, it was real enjoyable. Very educational. 
Yeah, man, same here. Uh, good luck with the podcast. Yeah, thanks, man. It was great getting to know you, Sam. And yep. I've now Bye. become Bye. an expert on the subject I like most. Getting to know Thanks to Sam for coming on the pod and sharing some seriously unique stories. I mean, fucking Madagascar, right? Like, where else are you going to get that shit? If you haven't already, check out his Instagram page. It's Samuel Freed. Freed is like friend without the end. Samuel Freed. To match the images with his adventures. Thanks to Toothbrushes for sponsoring today's pod and reminding us that investing just two minutes twice a day is a guaranteed return of a lifetime. Beautiful and healthy smiles. Please. Friend, follow, subscribe, listen. We are approaching 500 total streams, and we'd like to get up to 100 followers on Instagram by the end of April. Help us out. Spread the word. Enjoy someone else's stories. Later.